I so appreciate the uh, opportunity to be here today and to share God's word with you once again. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I uh, kind of felt like I got off on a bad foot last week, and uh, so the Lord has given me a chance to redeem myself a little bit. Um, but I wanted to start this morning just by letting you know what a privilege it is for me to be here and to share God's word with you. Uh, it's a privilege that I do not take lightly. And um, I, I promised the Lord a long time ago that if, I didn't think he would ever do this, but if he, I, I said, Lord, if you ever give me a chance to speak on your behalf, whether it's a, at a youth group or a, or a home Bible study or anything like that, I said, whatever door you open, if it's possible at all, I'm going to go through that door. And uh, so I've been trusting God and his grace ever since to open doors, and he's opened this door, and I'm just really, really glad that I can be here this morning with all of you. Um, and, and just to let you know where kind of where my heart is, Paul's words to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 11, you don't have to turn there, um, I just wanted to read them to you because these words resonate so powerfully with me. Paul said, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. That's where I'm at this morning. And I hope that that's where you're at too, that we can mutually encourage one another. Um, and uh, along with that little opening, I'm especially grateful that in the providence of God, you guys have been making your way through the book of Acts. I'm not sure exactly how long ago you started. I know that Pastor Nick was a uh, expository preacher here, and that's the same thing I do. You know, take a, take a chapter and start with verse 1, and you work your way through the chapter and eventually through the, uh, the end of the book. And uh, you guys have been working your way through Acts and in the passage that's in front of us today, we are going to be dealing with a question, maybe the most important question that anybody could ever possibly ask. And that is, how can we make it to heaven? How can, how can sinners be um, forgiven and, and acceptable to a holy God? We talked that, about that just a little bit last week, and I found something uh, that I wanted to kind of share with you this morning um, if you can share that slide now, the far side slide. Um, <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. Now, I don't know if you can, if you guys can see this or not. It's it's a little small, but we have a gentleman standing before King uh, uh, Saint Peter at the Golden Gates. And Peter is explaining to him the requirements to get inside. And he says, okay, now listen up, buddy. Nobody gets in here without answering the following question. A train leaves Philadelphia at 1 o'clock p.m. It's traveling at 65 miles an hour. Another train leaves Denver at 4 o'clock. Say, you need some paper? Um... Because And the, the caption is math-phobic's nightmare. Now, I confess to be a 
genuine, authentic, dyed-in-the-wool math-phobic. And, and so uh, I am grateful that there will, no, there will be no such test for any of us when we're standing, uh, if we even stand outside the pearly gates and, and uh, pray to be let in. But, you know, it, this Larson's humor exposes something that I think is prevalent in our culture. And that is the idea, in spite of what Scripture says, it, we, we still have this default mechanism in our minds that if we're going to please God, we've got to do it ourselves. We've got to be better as a person. We've got to work harder or, or love people more or sacrifice more or go to church more or take on more responsibilities. And all of this oftentimes just because we have this feeling that, that we're not right with God, and that's, that's pretty much how we all enter the world. Uh, we enter the world as children of, of uh, Adam and Eve, and, and we're bearing the curse of the fall. And so when we come into the world, we're, we're arriving, one person said, we're arriving shaking our fist at God and saying, this is my life, and you're not going to tell me what to do with it. And even as Christians, when we find out that the, it was the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus that has made us acceptable to God, that it, it's Jesus' blood that washes away our sins and that makes us uh, worthy to stand in his, in his presence. It's not our worthiness. It's the worthiness that is imputed to us by Jesus and and. We, we receive that when we are clothed in his righteousness. Um, we still feel like uh, there's something that we need to do. Now, I can give you a, a, an example of this, and you don't need to turn here either. We're eventually going to uh, get to Acts 15. But in Mark 10, there's a very interesting uh, exchange that takes place between Jesus and a man commonly known as the rich young ruler. And Mark 10 verse 17 says, As he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to what? To inherit eternal life. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life. Now, I want to cut the rich young ruler a little bit of slack because he doesn't know about the cross. He's still living under that old mosaic system. The law was, was the ruler of Jewish people in their hearts and minds. And so he was asking a question that was really not all that out of place for his culture. Nicodemus did the same thing in John 3. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, we know that you're a man who was sent from God because nobody could do the things that you're doing unless God were with him. And Jesus did not say to Nicodemus, well, how astute of you to, to recognize who I am and what I'm doing here. Jesus didn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus pulled the, the, the theological rug out from under Nicodemus when he said, well, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is what? Born again. 
born again. And, and how does that happen? That's what Nicodemus said. How can I be born again? I've kept all the other laws. I've kept all the other rules. I'm a Pharisee. He was the teacher of teachers. He was, he was a, you know, a, a very well thought of man. He, had a, he was a man of high standing. And yet he was standing there before Jesus saying, oh, I have to do something else? I have to be born again? How can a man be born again? How can he enter his mother's womb to be born a second time? The very last words that are recorded by Nicodemus in that passage are the words, how can these things be? And I believe that those words were spoken in despair because Nicodemus was thinking, for all I've done after keeping the law fastidiously, just every jot and every tittle, after all of that, you mean that that doesn't count for anything? And yet that's exactly what Jesus was telling him. We are hardwired to think that eternal life in heaven can be earned by being good enough. That is, if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, we're okay. That's kind of where we default to. And if you don't believe me, Think about the way our culture teaches these lessons. Now, we're coming up on the holiday season, right? You better not shout. You better not cry. You better not pout. Yeah. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. So be good for goodness sake. How good? How good? You know what Jesus told his listeners in Matthew uh, 7 in in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he telling them? You must be greater in terms of righteousness and holiness than, than the, the scribes and the Pharisees who were the most holy, most righteous people in their culture. And just to make sure that the people didn't miss his point, a little later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, therefore, you must be, you know what the word is next? You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How can we pull that off? Not on our own. Not on our own. There's another song that I think of, and I'll, I'll get off of this in a minute, but, but for those of you who are old enough to uh, remember uh, songs from the late 50s, early 60s, there was a song that said, um, Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? Anybody remember that song? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven. So I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. I don't think that people were intentionally being 
programmed or brainwashed when that song played on the radio, but it definitely reinforces what is already there in us, that we have this default tendency to think that we can work our way to heaven. Even in the church, there are those who teach wrongly that the road to heaven is paved with good works. There are also those who manage to confuse God's mercy, which is a free gift of grace, with the rewards God promises those who serve him faithfully. Paul talks about those rewards in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, beginning in verse 10. He said some, some of our works are going to be like wood, hay, and stubble. They'll be burned up. The only works that we uh, bring into glory with us are, are the, the, the gold and the jewels and, and so forth. Um, and he says, uh, you know, those, those will be our rewards. Salvation is a gift, not a reward. It's important to differentiate those two. So if you were here last week, you heard me say that the men who were causing this contention in the debate in Acts 15 were most likely false brothers. They were not true Christians. They were false brothers, which is to say that they were false teachers because they were teaching the men, uh, the, the, the Gentiles, that they must be circumcised and, uh, in order to be, to be saved. And their message was not in line with the gospel, and this becomes evident uh, to us in our text today. So if you have your Bible with you, I didn't put this up on the, on the, um, the screen, but if you have your Bible with you, I'm going to be reading from Acts 15, and um, I'll be beginning in the, in the sixth verse. If you'll excuse me a minute, I've untied my shoe here. And I don't want to fall on my face. And you don't want me to fall on my face. I don't know why they, they put these shoestrings that are this long into a pair of shoes that have three eyes on them or four eyes or whatever. Okay, Acts 15... And verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, the matter of the claim that, uh, that it was necessary to circumcise Gentiles in order, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Uh, that's the matter that they're considering. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What Peter is referring to is something that at this point in time happened 10 years earlier. And that's the events that took place in Acts 10. When Peter had this vision of animals being lowered down from heaven and there were all kinds of creatures and, and a voice from heaven saying, Peter, rise, kill and eat. And, and Peter was saying, I'll never eat anything that's unclean. And, and uh, he had this vision and he, wasn't, he was trying to figure it out. And in the meantime, there's another angel talking to this uh, centurion named Cornelius. And he's saying, Cornelius, we want you to go down to uh, this house and, and look for uh, Peter because he has had a vision concerning you. And so you guys need to hook up. 
That's, that's, a, uh, that's not a literal translation of the text. That's just my uh, paraphrase. But this is 10 years ago. And now they're standing in a room in Jerusalem talking about that same event. That's what Peter is referring to when he says, In the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, know, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So we got two opposing viewpoints here. Definitely two opposing viewpoints, and they are incompatible. Anybody that thinks, oh, we can, we can kind of fudge a little bit on, on the gospel of grace. We can, we can sort of, you know, uh, figure out a way to get along um, there are some things that Christians legitimately disagree on. Some things we don't need to disagree on. Style of music is one of the things that I don't think we need to disagree on. Um, did I say that right? No, I, I didn't say that right. What I meant to say was that uh, a style of music is something we shouldn't be fighting over. We should show each other grace. Um, we should, like the song said that we sang, we should learn to get along with each other and love one another and give each other much grace. But there are some things that cannot be glossed over. And the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is one of them. All the assembly fell silent, Luke writes, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied. So we've got Peter, first of all, standing up after, the, after all the discussion. We've got Peter standing up and saying, hey, I remember this vision that I had 10 years ago, and, and it was including Gentiles. And then the assembly falls silent while Peter or while Paul and Barnabas stand up to, to tell what uh, God had done through them. And now James, who apparently is heading up this meeting, most of the, of the commentators that I've read concerning this seem to think that James was the leader at this time of the church in Jerusalem. He was, in fact, um, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was speaking on behalf of the church. So when James spoke, it's kind of like E.F. Hutton, when James spoke, everybody listened. And he said, reading in the second half of verse 13, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. 
And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. You know, it's helpful when you have a dispute over something that needs to be worked through. Um, instead of just offering your opinion or taking a side with somebody that you happen to like in the church or whatever, um, it's always helpful to go back to the scripture and ask, what does the scripture say regarding this issue? Now, I'll be the first to admit, that's taking the long road home. That's, that's taking the high road. It's much easier to offer an opinion. It's, uh, it's easier to, to take sides. But it isn't good for the church, the local church, and it isn't good for the kingdom either. So James says... Well, you know, these guys are saying that um, the Gentiles are, are accepted into the family. And, and it makes me think of this verse. It's from Amos chapter, uh, I think chapter 4. It is, or, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 11. Um, James says, with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. By the way. When Jesus was doing battle with, with Satan in the, in the desert just before he began his earthly ministry and Satan began to tempt him, how did Jesus answer? It is written. It is written. What does James say? Hey, this agrees with what, what, what has been written. After this... I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. James says, scripture backs it up. We might as well do what God's word says. Um, you know, it's important for us to realize, to understand what's going on here, to realize that at this point, the church is at a critical juncture. If the Judaizers, the ones who are arguing for circumcision for the Gentiles, if they win, then... Christianity just becomes a little sect within, Christ, uh, within Judaism. It never comes out as being different and distinct from Judaism. The Jews have a different answer to the question, how can a man be reconciled to God than the, than the the Christians do. Christians answer that question, that question by saying, by, by being born again, by trusting in Jesus, by repenting of your sins, by, by receiving his mercy and grace. And the Jews say, no, no, it's by observing the law, the Mosaic law. Do you know how many laws there were to obey? Charles Krauthammer, who is one of my, one of my heroes, um, who is now passed on, but Charles Krauthammer said there were 613 commands to be obeyed in the Jewish uh, Torah. 
613. You couldn't blow your nose without breaking a command, I don't think. And so there's a very, very clear distinction between Jews and Christians in that the Jews say the way to heaven is by keeping the Mosaic law and the Christians say, no, it's not. Jesus' death on the cross took care of that. You know, I I keep thinking of going back to the uh, Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to what? Fulfill. And I spent a little time yesterday looking through, in just in this translation, um, looking through Matthew's gospel and finding out that there were something, I think, uh, like 30 times that a phrase appears that says, and so was fulfilled by the prophet, or the, the, wor- or the words that the prophet spoke. Uh, Jesus fulfilled these things. His death on the cross took care of a lot. Now, I don't know if you're, um, if you're aware of just exactly how burdensome that law may be. There are generally three types of of laws um, that are, or areas that the law covers in the Old Testament. Uh, First of all, there are the ceremonial laws, and this includes Passover. Uh, It it includes the command to worship God alone. The first four commands of the Ten Commandments are are ceremonial in nature. Um, Don't worship idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. And then Moses begins to record the the horizontal commands. I loved it when Pastor Nick last week talked about vertical commands or or vertical relationships and horizontal relationships. The first four commandments of the the Ten Commandments are, are vertical in nature. They deal with our relationship with God. The second six are horizontal, and that is they deal with our relationships with one another. Many of them are moral. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. And they're often social in nature. Uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. That's what? Vertical, right? The second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Jesus, in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, changed dramatically the list of laws that we are often challenged with or expected to observe. Um, Matthew 5.17, I just mentioned it a minute ago. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven or until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. What is accomplished? 
Well, the fulfillment of the law, and particularly the ceremonial law. When Jesus hung on the cross in John 19 and verse 30, he had received the wine, the sour wine, John writes, and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And when he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, he wasn't talking about his life. He was talking about the Old Testament laws that people had on their necks as a yoke that Peter was talking about in Acts 15, a yoke that no one had ever been able to bear because it's just too much. So what was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law? Well, uh, one, one uh, section of Scripture, Paul says it was, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. What does he mean by that? I'll tell you what. It teaches us that God's standard of perfection is a lot higher than our standard of perfection. When God says, if you want to be perfect, this is where you need to be. What, sh- what that should create in every one of us is despair first in knowing if that's the standard, I'm done. I can't do that. And that's the point where the good news of the gospel becomes relevant because we call out to Jesus. We call out to the one whose death, whose shed blood washed our sins away. And and now we stand before him clothed in his righteousness, not our own, and know that there is no uh, more condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Now, we have a pretty simple worship service here. Uh, most Christian churches do. With the Hebrews, it was not this way. Um, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 1 says this since the law has but a shadow or has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities the law can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin But in these sacrifices, he writes, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The the blood of bulls and goats was never intended to take away sins. It was pointing forward to the ultimate Lamb of God who would someday shed his blood for the sins of the whole world. The writer goes on to say, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In bird offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said uh, uh, these things previously, he said, You have neither desired nor taken Uh, pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings 
these are offered according to the law. The law requires them. But then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And listen to this, my, my friends. He abolishes, that is, Jesus abolishes the first, that sacrificial system, in order to establish the second, that is, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isn't that good news? Once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service. This is what makes me think that this was written before A.D. 70 because the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 and there were no more sacrifices and there have never been since then. But this writer says, when the priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, Christ... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you know what was missing in the, in the, uh, in the temple for the priests? There was no chair. There was no place to sit down. You know why? Because the work was never done. Every day they're back in the temple and they're sacrificing these animals and they're going through this whole ritual and the ritual was never intended to save. It was merely pointing forward, as I said a minute ago, to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus when he came and offered himself on the cross of Calvary. So the sacrificial system is done. We don't have to worry about sacrificing animals and having grain offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and all the stuff that you read about in Leviticus. And you know what else is, is finished? And I like this because uh, I happen to like seafood. Anybody else like seafood here? All right. You're my kind of people. Um, Jesus was being questioned for... Uh, the fact that his disciples were not washing their hands when they ate. And what they were referring to really was a ceremonial washing, this uh, intricate, involved uh, ceremony. And Jesus, in Mark 7, verse 14, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then you, uh, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person cannot, uh, from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters his heart, but not his, uh, uh, since it enters not his heart, excuse me, I get excited when I'm doing this. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, I love what comes next. Thus he declared all foods clean. Do you know that Leviticus, if you read through Leviticus, you will find a, a place where it says the only kind of seafood we're permitted to eat 
or if we were Jews, if we were good kosher Jews, we would be limited to things that have scales and fins. That rules out crab legs, lobster, shrimp, um, oysters. I mean, pretty long list. And, and I would, my, my uh, menu choices would be greatly impoverished if that law were still in effect, but it's not. Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things, these evil things, come from within and they defile a person. Now, it's great to know that we are free from observing the ceremonial law. But don't think for a minute that we are not obligated as much as ever, perhaps maybe more than ever, to obey God's moral laws. A lot of people seem to think that if I'm saved by grace, then I'm good. I'm free to go. I can do anything I want. All I have to do is confess my sin to Jesus and I can, I can be forgiven and, and I'll just get right back up and go doing what I'm used to doing. Um, anybody who can think that way, I frankly think, has not really been born again. Because they don't realize the price that was paid so that our sins could be forgiven. Um, had a friend told, tell me one time that they were doing some street evangelism in Dayton. And they went up to a guy, and this guy says, uh, I have good news for you. The guy says, what? What good news? He says, Jesus died for your sins. The guy says, cool. He's thinking, Jesus died for my sins. My sins are taken care of. I can do anything I want. Anybody who can think like that has not really understood the meaning of the words, Jesus died for our sins. That's why Paul writes in um, 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, do you not know, listen carefully, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. And that's exactly where the Corinthian church was. They were deceived into thinking, hey, we can do whatever we want because we're saved by grace. No, Paul says, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You, and Paul goes on to say, you are all running around saying things like, all things are lawful for me. Paul says, yeah, maybe all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Uh, food for the stomach and 
the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know? Boy, this, this verse had, a, had the impact of a, of, a, of a freight train on me at one point in my early Christian life. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That's what Joseph did. Remember Joseph in, back in Genesis when Potiphar's wife was, was trying to put the moves on Joseph and Joseph said, how could I do such a terrible thing and sin against, remember who he was sinning against? Sinning against God. I can't do that. And so Mrs. Potiphar kept hitting on him one day after the other, after the other. And then, and then finally she grabbed a hold of his, his robe and, and he just left it behind. He slipped out of his robe and he was gone. Somebody said that's the second time he lost his robe. Um, He said, how can I do this and sin against God? Joseph uh, fled. I can think of another Old Testament saint who is not a hero, by the way, despite what a lot of people think, and that's King David. He didn't flee. We know how that story ended. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body, this is the verse that hit me, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. Don't you know that? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Yeah, we're free from the legal requirements of the Old Testament law. Boy, God's moral law is still with us. It's still a sin to to commit murder. It's still a sin to lie. It's still a sin to steal. It's still a sin to commit adultery. All of those things are, are commands that God has put in place and he's left them in place for our good. For our good. I think even though we're tempted every day, we get up in the morning and say, Lord, this is going to be another day of me battling with the tempter. He is going to try to trip me up and, and try to make me fall on my face and, and I need you to help me make it through this day. Lord, please don't let me go. I believe with all of my heart that God will be faithful to answer that prayer. Keep us safe in his care. 1 Corinthians 10.13 God has not given us more than we can handle, Paul says.
But every time that we're tempted, he will provide a way out so that we can bear up under the temptation. Our trouble is we don't always look for the way out. We yield to the temptation way too quickly. James concludes his words to the uh, to the church by saying, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every had in every city those who proclaim him and he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, if we, if we just look at that real quickly, um, we, we would probably ask the question, well, if we're saved by grace, if, if none of these laws apply anymore, then how come there's a dietary restriction here as well as a sexual immorality restriction, a couple dietary restrictions, um, what, uh, and things about pollute. Uh, things polluted by idols. How does that fit in? I'll tell you next week. Okay? I'll tell you next week um, when, when I wrap up this, this section of, of God's word. But this morning, I just want to remind you, we are free in Christ. We have, uh, we have tremendous freedom. And, and yet the Lord has been um, very clear to us to let us know where the boundaries are and uh, what we need to do to stay within those boundaries. Uh, he will keep us. He will hold us. And as we trust him and walk with him every day, we will learn to live in the liberty that he has provided for us. Please pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What great news. Lord, we thank you that, that no one can pluck us out of your hand because you are mightier and greater than anyone or anything in this universe. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We confess, Lord, that we fail you every day. And yet we know that our sins indeed have been washed away. It doesn't make us like the sin any, anymore. It doesn't lead us to try any less not to sin. But we know, Lord, that ultimately our salvation doesn't depend on us. It depends on you and what you have put in place, what you have made possible. No one can change. No one can take it away. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.